accessing library computer data. Out there, there are no saints. Just people. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the show. We're continuing our run through of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and we are up to the season finale for season two. It's called The Jem'Hadar. It is episode 26 of season two, aired on June 12th, 1994, written by Iris Stephen Bear, directed by Kim Friedman, who has returned. She, uh, she was around here recently with a couple episodes. The first woman to direct a Deep Space Nine. They liked her so much they brought her back for a couple more episodes. Isn't that a quality right there? Um, on a camping trip in the Gamma Quadrant, Cisco, Jake, Nog, and Quark encounter the ruthless soldiers of the Dominion, the Jem'Hadar. Anyway, Clay, uh, the, the the person you're the person I would, would be willing to do a science project in the Gamma Quadrant with. How are you? Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Well, I would like to say that uh, Quark in the jungle is very much me in the jungle. I <laughs> I I would do nothing but complain. Like I enjoy camping, but if there's one thing I hate. It's bugs and humidity. I actually and, wrote that uh, down. I've, I've never related yeah. to Quark more than I relate to him in this episode. It was a real turning point for me in the character. No, he, overall, I was totally on Team Quark in this episode because not only did I identify with him and his thoughts towards spending an extended period of time in the hot jungle, but he was also speaking aloud a lot of stuff that I've been saying about Starfleet up to this point, yep. which I really enjoyed. So I thought it was uh, I thought it was good. So we will, uh, I don't know, I will, ha, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll take a break. I'm going to play an audio clip, and we're going to come back, and we're going to break down the season finale of season two of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It's called The Jem'Hadar. If the founders are the ones who give the orders, I want to meet them. Those aren't my orders. He can't take you to the Founders because they don't exist. They're a myth. The Founders exist. They created the Dominion. And the Jem'Hadar are their servants. A Ferengi and a human. I was hoping the first race I'd meet from the other side of the anomaly would be the Klingons. I'm sorry to disappoint you. It's too late for apologies. The Dominion will no longer stand by and allow ships from your side to violate our territory. I hear the Klingons are effective warriors. What's that weapon they're so fond of, the Batleth? I am not interested in discussing the Klingons. All right. Then what about the Cardassians? Are you satisfied with the treaty your Federation made with them? It seems a tactical error. How do you know so much about our side of the galaxy? We gain more knowledge every day. And now we have you to help us learn more. I don't plan on telling you anything. I won't be the one asking the questions. Who will? I was really hoping to meet a Klingon. Nerikle, so this... At this point, DS9 is on its own. TNG has ended. Uh, Voyager will start shortly after this. It starts a couple episodes into Season 3 of Deep Space Nine. This is the one portion of its history where Star Trek DS9 is all on its own. Michael Piller, uh, his impact pretty much wraps up after this episode. This is the last one where he's writing supervisor, basically head writer of the show. Iris Stephen Bear will step in. Although, I feel that Piller's influence has been diminishing in the probably the past 
eight or ten episodes. So the second half of the second season of DS9 had been very different from everything that came before it. And I think that it it doesn't really culminate here. Uh, but I'll, I'll say one bit of trivia before passing it off to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, DS9 never does a part one, part two season finale, season premiere storyline. Really? Yeah. So the TNG did it every single year. Uh, except for the first year. They did it every single year. Uh, well, I guess the second year didn't either because it was a clip show that wrapped it up. But uh, starting with Best of Both Worlds, they did it uh, every single year. Voyager does it every year, I'm pretty Could sure. Could you imagine if a television show now had a season finale that was a clip show? I know. it would. There would be, there <laughs> riots, would be in the riots in the streets. <laughs> it, would have been, it would be terrible. Like, you can... Could you imagine if the second to last season of Breaking Bad was a clip show for the final? I know. The final episode. <laughs> I, I was thinking people probably don't remember uh, the TNG clip show fondly. If it had been like snuck in the middle of the season, I think it might have actually been remembered a little bit better than it was. Well, it's I don't. It's kind of a lost. Uh, I don't want to say art, but it's kind of a lost art, isn't it? Cause it they, is. They, they, don't, yeah. they don't really. They're not really applicable anymore in, in modern television. The last te- the last show that I watched that I can remember doing one was The Office. Yep. And usually when they do it. And the Simpsons did this too, where they would have some sort of framing device that put the clips into a a story, you know, a hum- yeah, into yeah. a story that made sense and recontextualized them a bit. Um, My favorite yeah, clip you- show is uh, the Clerks animated series. The second episode is a clip yes. show. Yeah. <laughs> Man, what a what an underrated show that was. That it was, was such a good but show. There, there's a way to do a clip show good. Did you know? Sorry, a little bit of uh, a trivia. Did you know the the showrunner for that show? Is the sh- currently the showrunner on Veep, and he used to work on um, Seinfeld. Oh yeah, it's um, the fat guy. What's his name? Um, I think it's Brad something. Is it no? It's Maybe um. And he also did Euro Trip, and he's the writer on VIP, VIP right now. Um, David Mandel, right? Yes, David yes. Mandel. Yeah. I don't know why I thought it was Brad. Yeah. He also. <laughs> I also. I also learned that he owns a very large quantity of original pages from the dark knight returns apparently i mean he's got like more money than god yeah apparently he spends a lot of it on comic book art so dave mandel if you're listening i have a lot of comic book art (laughs) you have a lot of money let's make this i need to move (laughs) (laughs) um let's see so what what the hell was i saying oh they don't do they don't do cliffhangers um DS9 always does this kind of a thing where the 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 storyline basically ends and then the next season is a somewhat of a re, not a reset but they sort of use the first two episodes of the season to set the stage for the season. Um I think I prefer DS9's way about it and actually the Gem Hadar is maybe the weakest of the season finales that DS9 would ever do. Um but I prefer, it feels a little bit more modern to not do this cliffhanger that inevitably you know the second part is going to be a letdown when you come back. Uh, I prefer what they do here. So on a technical level, would you say that you'd you'd prefer ending the season on a story that maybe leaves things open-ended but isn't to be continued at the end of the screen? I would say yes, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess it's a toss-up because was Best of Both Worlds a season ender? It was, right? It was, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll take that still. But uh, generally, yes, the, the second half is, is not um, – doesn't really deliver on the expectations of the first half if the first half is really good. Um, but, yeah, I would say generally, yes. 
uh, I would prefer um, the way they do it here, where it's like it's not a it's definitely not a cliffhanger, but it's not just like they don't just tie everything up in a bow and dun, 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 you know yeah right uh, freeze frame high five at the end. But it's still more of a complete story than yes. stepping away in the climax of like the if this was split over two parter, it probably would have been when um Cisco and Quark escape from the 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 little force field thing they'd probably mm-hmm. draw it out more in the second half about what happens but that would be the to be continued would be them running out of the cave I would you think You know I actually now that I'm thinking about it this does kind of feel like a first parter because if you really look at what's going on there's not a ton that's happening No it's basically just sitting around and talking in a, in a bunch of different locations. Well, I mean, that's most things, but, uh, it's, there's not, it's, it's, uh, Cisco and Quark and the girl are trapped. And then, uh, Nog and Jake are trying to fly away. And it's a lot, it's a lot of stage setting. There's not really a lot actually going on. So I, if you told me this was the first half of a two parter, I would believe you, even though it does basically more or less wrap up at the end. It has a more complete ending than, uh, than, yeah, uh, than most first parters do. I think its structure is actually the worst part of the episode. Um, yeah, I think that it takes way too long to get going with what they're trying to do, and I don't know if there's a, I don't know if the camping thing is supposed to be lighthearted, leading into a very dark, heart like uh, sad, like sadder. I guess would be the word ending towards things, but it doesn't. It doesn't feel like the show is intentionally trying to make a schism there. It just feels like no. they're delaying it for a long time before revealing the Jem'Hadar to you. Yeah, it just seemed like they needed something to do. Like, there's no... I mean, even after they go to that planet, there's not really... After everything shakes out, there's not really any reason why they had it had to be that planet or anything. Right. You you kind of you kind of need to you need to isolate Cisco and Quark is really yes. the only thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what'd you think of what'd you think of the Jem'Hadar? Um, I thought it was good. I thought it was overall it was a decent episode. Um, most of it being saved by Quark and his interactions with Cisco. Because um, I thought the stuff he was saying was was really good, and it brings, like I said, it brings to to the to the forefront a lot of. Uh, this falls right into that slot of is it who's the showrunner now? Is it Iris, I, Iris Stephen Bear? Yeah, yeah his and, 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 and everything but name. He takes over midway through yeah. season three, but he is running the show at this point. And what you were saying previously about him sort of pushing back against the Roddenberry thing—I mean, that's very clear in uh, in everything that Quark is saying, and it's stuff that we've talked about previously, where it's like you know they push this idea of unity and everybody's accepted, but you know the the people are basically racist towards the Ferengi, like across the board. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, even on TNG, it was just like, yeah, the Ferengi, nobody likes the Ferengi. And it's something, it's, it's an interesting ethic. I don't know if ethical is the right word, but it's an interesting uh, uh, issue to have to reconcile in this world that they're setting up. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy somebody finally brought it up. Um, And then I thought the last maybe 10 minutes I thought were great. Yeah, the last ten uh, minutes are great in my in my opinion here. Yeah, I thought the um, I wonder if they're setting up the uh, Gom Jabbar here. Uh, sorry, the Jemadar <laughs> as a little bit too powerful uh, for how easily they just sort of poo poo all of the Starfleet technology and then blow up 
basically the Enterprise, which was a nice touch, by the way. That's a good way to, t- to show people how powerful it is, where you're just like, yeah, it's just, it's the, it's not the Enterprise, but it's the Enterprise. It does everything right. the Enterprise can do. So if it takes out the Enterprise, you know there's some, uh, some heavy shit going on. Um, yeah, they seem a little bit overpowered, but uh, I don't know how much that continues. But I, th- I thought uh, it's the first, th- the ending of this episode was the first time that I was like, fuck yeah. But coming from Cisco, like his last line was best of both worlds, part one adjacent, if not equal. Yeah, yeah, sure. And his, yeah, his last line is um, if the Dominion comes through the wormhole where the first line or the first battle will be fought here, I need to be ready for them. Yeah, I thought that was great. Like the th- everything leading up to that with the girl turning out to be a spy, I thought was good. Were you fooled um, by that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't even think about it, to be honest I, with you. I, 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 mean, I remember being very fooled by that. I remember being totally surprised that that was the case because I, I think it's believable if you're a Star Trek watcher because they always kind of need that character who's there to explain what's going on to you. So right. it, it's not like it's awkward or expected, in my opinion, to have that character who's there to explain things. I, I was really actually very surprised by the uh, the twist at the end. Yeah, I wonder if, you know, looking back, if uh, if their plan seems a little suspect. Um, I the guess Dominion plan her... you're talking about? Yeah, I don't know. I, no, I, I guess it works, because the point of it was to get her on as a spy, so I guess it's fine. But I did it, seems only... a, it's, it seems a little long way around uh, to, to do that. But um... Instead of just planting eris in with the station you know from the starts like having having them get captured and everything i think it i think it kind of makes sense they want the the dominion from this episode want the federation to know about them and what the repercussions will be for dealing with them Mm -hmm. so i understand that i was thinking the only weakness in the plan might be the fact that some of the jemhadar who are aware that it's a setup get killed during the escape, but then they suicide kamikaze attack at the end anyway, which kind of saves it because they're they're all willing to die for what the purpose right. is. Uh, that would have been my only problem. I think they sidestep it fairly nicely. I think it's um, I think it's just the fact that the Dominion wants the Federation to know what's going on, and simply inserting Eris into it wouldn't have been as dramatic for their purposes. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I guess it's it's an interesting kind of thing because it's like, well, they want they want the Federation to know what's going on, but they also want someone in there to get information about the Federation. So they're kind of just they're. It seems like they're they're the the necessity of having a spy is usually because um, you want to know what your enemy is doing, obviously, but ideally you don't actually fight the enemy. You know? Right. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So coming out guns blazing against the Federation and also putting a spy in there seems like, well, why didn't you? I, I don't know. I'm not entirely sure why that they want they want the the Federation to be aware of them unless yep. they say that. And I missed it. No, um, uh, just the fact that they they don't want them trespassing in their space, basically. So they have to yeah, make okay. it, they have to make an example of what that means. And the only way to do that is to really show uh the force that you have behind you. And then honestly, the Eris thing, the spy thing almost feels tertiary. Like they don't really even care if she gets in there. It's just, that's what it is. Yeah. I guess, you know, if you're thinking about it strategically, it's like, well, we're going to make this, um, (laughs) well, I guess it it takes us another step back too, which is like, well, what was their plan? If Quark and commander Cisco 
didn't happen to pick that planet to go to. Yeah. Like it was it was this always was this meant to be their big coming out party to the Federation and if so what was their what were they going to do in lieu of this? Like were they just, you know that kind of thing. Well, that's a, I mean, do you that's, do you think that they don't know because bit, they seem to know a lot about the Federation. Do you think that they didn't know that Cisco was coming uh over to that planet, I guess? Oh, I mean they might have. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I, I, before I kind of went down that rabbit hole, I was just going to say, strategically, it does make sense that if you're going to present yourself to a potential enemy, you're going to want to, you know, that's going to start a confrontation. So you're going to want to have somebody on the inside. So yeah, I would say that makes sense. Yeah. And I, um, I guess we'll get into it a little bit more about the, the, the methods of the Dominion and how they work and everything, because they do touch on it a little bit in this episode. So it might sort of fix these kind of, uh, resolution problems, but I guess that the, I guess we'll, I'll, I just wanted to start with the Quirk and Cisco thing because I think thematically the two halves of the story tie into each other on some level, mm-hmm. and the thematic tie there is the fact that as you were talking about Iris Stephen Bear's sort of worldview of the Federation, both of the stories have to deal with the Federation being either naive or blind to the fact that there are options outside of their worldview. And it leads yeah. to a problem in both senses. So Quark and Cisco get into a fight where Quark sort of throws the thing back in Cisco's face about, you know, as much as you hate us, we've never had war, uh, genocidal wars. We've never had slavery and things like that. Quark's being a little bit dishonest. They are a culture that subjugates women and doesn't allow them to wear clothes and everything like that. So the Ferengi well, are... Well, but see, that doesn't count if they don't realize they're doing something wrong. <laughs> right. See, that's the... I think it's more... It's not that Quark is making a truthful statement. I think what the script is actually doing is just saying that the... Like, the moral relativism of the Roddenberry universe can be flipped and used against you. Mm-hmm. Like, you... If you go around just saying, like, every culture is sort of relative to what it is and you can't really... You, you can't make any judgments about what they're choosing to do. Having Quark do this is kind of a, it's food for thought, but he's not being 100% honest with it. Like, it's just adding a little bit of shades of gray to the interactions between the cultures. Yeah, and I think it's great because it's, you know, um, I think we've talked about this before covering a couple other shows, De- definitely when we covered Miami Vice. But um, the... I think the difference between Roddenberry and most of his writers is I don't know if Roddenberry realizes that the narrative uh, the the narrative uh, interest that comes from an idea like this, uh, like the the world that he's setting up, is when people go against it. And it, it's in what in other shows we've talked about it basically like if you're a cop, if you let's say in Miami Vice you're an undercover cop. Being a good undercover cop does not make for good television. Uh, Crockett and Tubbs are not good undercover cops. <laughs> yeah, They're right. terrible undercover cops. Um, and that's what makes it interesting to watch. Um, and I think that applies here, too. Because, I mean, if it, when, when you go by the book, you get Star Trek TNG Season 1. Um, it's setting up this, this context... And then having people from inside it and from outside it pushing against it is where your your narrative uh, um, uh, conflict and action comes from. It's like, um, oh shit, I just had it in my head. Oh, uh, so I have a big thing in movies now. Um, happened in I don't know if you saw Black Panther. I got this a bit in Black Panther, but 
mm-hmm. big one for me was um, Independence Day 2. I know it's a weird one to pull out, but uh, I think that if you're going to present something advanced, like an advanced tech- technology or an advanced civilization or something like that, um, it can't just work the way it's supposed to for the entire movie or the entire story. Like Minority Report. Minority yeah. Report sets up this very futuristic, advanced technology, and it stops. Well, it doesn't. I shouldn't say it stops working, but there's a there's a cog thrown into the machine, right? Yep. There's a flaw. And so, yeah. yeah. And so, like in Independence Day, the thing that bothered me was they set up the humans with having all of this futuristic alien technology that's you know super powerful, and then the aliens just come back and they they just fight them with the alien technology, and it's just like people shooting at each other for two and a half hours. A very long movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas, like narratively, I feel like the thing that makes sense is the aliens come back, the super advanced technology you have doesn't work against them, and so you're forced to go a different route, whether that's, uh, you know, back to the uh, non-alien technology. You know what I mean? Just yeah. something something that creates tension and against the idea instead of just, all right, this is the part where they punch each other. A little bit of a um, roller coaster as opposed to just a flatline action sequence for an hour. Yeah, and in Black Panther, the thing that bothered me was that the technology was at such a high level and at no point does ev- anybody in the situations fighting not have access to equally advanced technology. Right. That it's just like you're kind of losing any sort of narrative tension about what's going on. And the stakes, I mean, the stakes kind of go down because it just turns into people punching each other. Yeah. Um, and I think as far as Star Trek is concerned, it's the same thing where you've got these ideas, you've got the uh, idea of the Federation and then, and their um, all inclusivity, if that's a word, I'm going to just made that up. Um, you've got the prime directive. You've got these things that are, are, are rules that they go by. And the most interesting Uses of these are when you push against them and you break them. Yep. So that's yep. my long rant on the Federation. No, <laughs> it's, it's true. It's a because nobody there... wants to see nobody wants to see the Federation go to a new planet, uh, not get involved with this species that they have <laughs> ever in, encountered before. Yeah. Um, and then uh, everybody shakes hands and says, "You know, I really like you for who you are and who you are as a person." And I don't I can't have any ju- ill I feelings can't judge. towards anyone. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, can't, I mean, I, yeah. just be, it's it's Quark brings out this idea that it's like just because you have a unified idea doesn't is the thing I've been saying. It doesn't take away that people are going to be the way people are. Yeah. And sometimes people are shitty. Even in the best societies, there are shitty people. Yeah. And I'm not saying Cisco is a shitty person, but everybody's got stuff like this. You know, to say that you don't, you're being naive about yourself. Right. And they're they're actually playing up. Cisco has previously said some fairly anti Ferengi things in the series. Uh, there was an episode he didn't want Jake to hang out with Nog. That's always kind of a storyline. He always doesn't want Jake to hang out with Nog. Basically, uh, it's basically the white parents saying he doesn't want his kid hanging out with a black kid, and it, it's mm-hmm. it's oddly uncomfortable, and it's um. It's Cisco has a line that humans and Ferengi don't have a lot in common, and I don't think that will ever change. Is something he says earlier in the series. Um, yeah, you've got you've got this situation where it's like the operating procedure by which you are living your life and doing your job is very inclusive. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that you personally still can't not like people. Right, and it's again, it's. Not the utopia that people would hope for, but it's a lot more realistic, I can tell you that much. Yeah, and Quark's sort of calling them out for that hypocrisy. 
of their, their like, I- like you. You're an asshole, but I still do this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We're calling off the science project. Uh, that's no longer happening. Yeah, the like the Quark's calling out that hypocrisy, and it's the show is very interested in that hypocrisy there about how the Federation can have these ideals, but the people who work within the Federation don't seem to realize their own weaknesses against it. Yeah. They don't seem mm-hmm. they seem to think of themselves as higher and better. Like TNG season one is the epitome of just preachy. Every episode is them like lecturing some aliens that they come in contact with about right. the human way to do things. And DS9 is this is a big split. This is maybe not a great episode, but this is a hugely important episode for how the show goes forward. Uh not not just because the Dominion are introduced here and we they're the antagonists for the remainder of the series, but it's a the showrunner switch that we've been talking about and what's the tone that's been happening for the past couple episodes is basically the way that ds9 moves forward here like this is the way that the show sort of handles its stories it gets better than this because i don't think this is a technically sound uh structure that they're dealing with here but Mm -hmm. the last 10 minutes are the kind of excitement and interest and pairing it with the quirk storyline thematically so to get back to that the federation interaction with the dominion is basically this is basically a horrible first contact situation that's gone on here and it is it is a fascinating kind of reverse first contact actually yeah uh, uh, how, how do you mean well because usually it's we see it from the, the point of view of the federation making first contact oh i see so, and so then, the, it, then it goes wrong somehow from that point but here it's like no they are making first contact with the federation they are here to to, to punch sure yeah yes i'd agree with that like the, the dominion are taking the more aggressive uh maneuver again they're interacting with the federation as opposed to the other way around but it's yeah. a the naivete and the everything is hunky-dory attitude of the federation has fed into this bad first contact because they went through the wormhole and they just started setting up colonies, right? Without sort of figuring out what's going on over there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're thinking, well, you know, we're all explorers. Everything's good. We're just going to go, you know, other people that we've interacted with previously in other series have always been very rational. And even if uh, in, you're in TOS's arena episode, even if we are fighting over territory, it's because we don't realize it. And once we realize that everything is going to be okay, we'll just kind of mm-hmm. shake hands and walk off. This is the opposite reaction of what could have gone wrong. They run into something that they have no idea what they're how they're operating the enemy knows everything about them uh for some reason and they are not willing to negotiate there there's not a the the way that the dominion operate as they say in this episode is they'll offer you a uh olive branch if you don't take it they'll just kill you and the olive branch is not really an olive branch it's just we're going to be we're going to allow you to do things for us and you'll be happy with that arrangement and we won't kill you you know it's funny um I when I was when I was doing my book Dead Meat uh, a few years ago, I had this uh, group in it called the Answer, who were uh, the, the main antagonists of the story, and that is more or less what they did. Uh, that was their they basically were getting a wrangle on the um, zombie problem by creating a society where they would go town to town and they'd be like, "Hey, uh, you guys should join us." No pressure, and then people would join, and the ones that they didn't, they would kill. Yeah, um, which very effective marketing. Yeah, I wish yeah. I had. I wish I had seen this first. Um, yeah, uh. the only difference was they were actually uh, um, spoilers for books I haven't written yet. Um, 
they would release the zombies into the town and they would swoop in and save everybody and sure. then they yep. would then they would offer that thing so basically they would replenish their own army by sending in a bunch of zombies to kill a bunch of people and then they would come in save everybody and then whoever didn't join they would kill them they would turn to zombies and then they would draft them back into Yeah, you got to so re- they, you got to reinvest yeah. that capital so they into didn't, your they business. So they they weren't losing anything. There was no overhead for this mission. Right. Yep. Yep. Um the I don't know before we get to the ending, I guess this it's really just the Dominion to talk about. And um, is uh so is the Jem'Hadar separate from the Dominion or is it just a division of the Dominion? They are one of the races that make up the Dominion. Oh, okay. I didn't know if that was just like the name of uh you know, Oh, the their SS. army. I yeah. say no, they're so the the Dominion um are basically a mirror version of the Federation. So there, gotcha. there's a whole bunch of species you could it's been said that the Dominion are basically the Klingon versions of the uh, Dominion. The, the the Klingons aren't a part of the Federation, but they serve that purpose, kind of. Uh, the Vorta are the other ones that we met. They didn't get named in this, but that's what Era Eris is. She's a Vorta. Um, they've been roughly analogized to the Vulcans on some level. They're sort of a twisted version beyond, of the, what's beyond that? the ear, beyond the ears. Beyond the ears, they're they're not. Um, I don't want to say too much about the Vorta changed the most out of everything. The, the Jem'Hadar are always going to be this kind of like brute force uh, army mechanism of the Dominion. The Vorta change a little bit, and we haven't really gotten a good enough idea about what they are. They're, they're sinister. They're sort of like shadowy um, subterfuge agents would be a good way to describe them. Did you uh, uh, did you know, did you think they look kind of like the bad guys from Galaxy Quest? Uh, do the, the, you mean those like swamp thing looking aliens? Yeah, the the big like scaly looking uh, alien guys with the shit coming out of the back of their head from Galaxy Quest. Yeah, I feel like, you, they're, I feel like they're very similar <laughs> to the the Jem'Hadar you're talking about. Yes, yeah, yeah, okay. No, the um the Jem'Hadar remind me of dinosaurs, although though apparently they were supposed to be um, rhinoceros was like the inspiration. Oh, for, I see. Their, well, what is a rhinoceros? But, but a just a dinosaur, bald dinosaur. <laughs> what do you think of? We'd made fun of the. Um, DS9 makeup to this point with the alien species. I, I think they really they knew this was important, and I think they did a good job with both of those, the Vorta and the Jem'Hadar designs. Yeah, and and also at the beginning, that weird guy who's just walking around the the uh, the space station all the time got a nice in camera bump up. Yeah, that's more. That's more. Yeah. <laughs> Does he? I hope he plays a big role in the future. Like he has some sort of. Piece he's of always information or something. He's, that, he's that always helps in the series. Win. His name is an uh, anagram of Norm from Cheers. So he's just <laughs> he's always at the bar. Yeah, that's his. Nice. That's his thing. Um, um, but yeah, any. Why don't you why don't you say something about what you thought about the introduction of the Jem'Hadar and everything like that before we can? I have a couple points that I wanted to throw back and forth. Um, I thought it was. I thought they were good. I liked the uh, scene. Where he goes on to the the to Deep Space Nine, I think more than anything else, really. Yes, that's that's their best scene, you know. And I, I would make a few changes to this one. One of the changes would have been I would have opened this episode with Kira visiting New Bajor for the cold open. Yes, yeah, that would have been good. Yeah, and then um, that that moment that you're talking about would have had slightly more impact. It is it is kind of enough to know that they wiped out a colony, which is particularly horrific for the Bajorans who have just gotten over this occupation thing. Uh, but that would have heightened that, I think, to just to even know that these people existed and have a couple minutes of screen time with them. Yeah, and I kind of wish uh, when Kira was looking at that 
list of conquests that they had because I think he says something like, uh, "Here's a list of the ships that we've blown up." Yep. Um, I wish they had read them off and or a couple of them and commented on how impressive that was. But uh, I don't I don't know if you really need that because they obviously display that power later in the episode. But yes, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I thought that scene was a lot better of an introduction than the stuff down on the planet. Uh, the Which stuff is fairly planet, generic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the stuff when they're in, in the force field thing is, yeah, pretty generic. And um, the only thing that's really good about those scenes is the the, the Quark's interaction with, with Cisco. Um, aside from that, it's pretty much run-of-the-mill, <laughs> stuck-in-a-cave Star Trek stuff. Yes. Yeah. Stuck in the same cave that they're always stuck in for some reason. Yeah, yeah a different angle. It's amazing you can shoot that cave from so many different angles. <laughs> I did like the the Jem'Hadar talking about how he's disappointed that he met a human and a Ferengi coming through. I think that scene revealing oh, yeah, how, how much cool. they know is pretty good. Uh, that's probably like a, a 1B to the 1A of him showing up on the station and talking to them. Yeah, talking about wishing he had met a Klingon. That was good. I like that. Yes. So that's the... Um, Kind of a little bit of the Jem'Hadar that you get you get an insight into there. They're clearly warrior based. Uh, obviously, they're like the the battle force of the Dominion. Um, they're disappointed with the human Ferengi. They know about the Cardassian and human treaty that we talked about in the Maquis. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know that that was a failure on the Federation's part. Um, and then, so a lot of people compare the. We don't know too much about the Dominion at this point, but a lot of people compare them to the Borg on some way that they are a sort of twisted version of the Federation. That usually makes them the most effective antagonist is someone who's sort of similar to the protagonist, but different in some key way. Where the um, the Borg were more play on the dark side of the Federation. What the Federation does is kind of assimilate other cultures and bring it into this blandness that is the Federation. And the Borg were just an aggressive or hyper-aggressive version of that where you also lose any sense of individuality going forward. The Dominion yeah. are different than that but the dominion are just a caste structure federation where everyone has a role and everyone does something according to what their role is it's kind of a play on the the monocultures that starfleet and the federation run 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 into all the time where everyone seems to do the same thing Mm -hmm. the dominion are that except the roles make up a bigger society structure so it makes a little bit more sense yeah it kind of reminded me a little bit of what they were trying to do with the klingons on discovery um where you've got a each where in discovery the idea was they were unifying all these different houses of of the klingon people to uh fight against the encroaching federation it kind of felt a little bit like that where you could say like i mean they're obviously setting up the dominion as as bad guys but you could almost look at it as they are bound together for the purpose of pushing back against the federation kind of yes yeah Equal, equal. So we've all, I think which we've is, talked which before. is interesting. Yeah. Which is interesting. Cause it's, you know, you don't really see anybody do that. That's not flat out. Well, well I guess they, are these guys flat out evil? Do they have, do they have, is there gray coming up in these guys later on? They, down the line? they justify why they are the way that they are. Okay. Um, which maybe is good enough. The, and they do, they do add a lot more. I won't, I won't say anything to that. They do flesh out the dominion to, you're not going to know everything about their history or like how they work or anything like that, but they do yep. sort of explain why they operate the way that they do and how the society that they've formed works with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, the, cause we've, it's funny, you know, like the, the Cardassians and the Romulans are always and the Klingons are always called an empire. Right. But you never see 
an empire is in the way that humans use it is a you know one state sort of conquers a bunch of people around them and then they subjugate them into their society so you'd have different kinds of people and you never see that with the romulans and cardassian you never see a non-cardassian cardassian citizen you know what i mean right right yeah and they're, they're kind of like they're more like china Right. Yeah. And the, 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 the Dominion. I I, if that sounded like racially <laughs> insensitive, I didn't mean it to. I was just pointing out that it's, you know. Clay's just eating some General Chow's chicken right now, and he's just like, this is exactly what's going on. I don't know. Um, I don't know what you're a general of, but I love your chicken. <laughs> the Dominion are more Starfleet like, where it's a. The Empire is actually a bunch of different things that they. Uh, Eris mentions how her planet was conquered by the Dominion at some point, mm-hmm. subjugated. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are more in the sense of what an empire would actually be. Cause we, we had a problem, like how could the Federation ever fight the Klingons in an equal war? Because they're only, there's only so many Klingons while the Federation is huge at this point. I mean, from what I've learned from Star Trek, Klingon, you only see six Klingons at a time at right. any one time. <laughs> so and in Discovery, it, it, they were right. It, they were ready to bomb earth. We were moments away from being destroyed oh in Discovery and it didn't happen. It's a good thing we dropped that bomb into the volcano in the middle of their planet. <laughs> <laughs> oh fucking hell that show was bad so and the, the last thing that we learned about the dominion is that uh there are there's three major races of the dominion in the series we meet a bunch more but they're kind of one-offs uh that we deal with the jemhadar the vorta which is what eris is and then the founders who we haven't actually met yet um, and the irish and the irish of course the space irish who didn't want to be a that part of that would be amazing <laughs> that would be amazing if one of the, <laughs> the groups of the dominion was the space irish <laughs> The most fearsome. Um, and that that's just, so just setting the table for that. They talk about the founders a little bit in here. And um, I believe they talked about the founders in Shadow Play. We were talking about how they, the, I think they might have been referring to the Dominion as a myth. Or were they saying, no, they're was saying the changelings e- were a myth, right? Was that an episode or was that the name of uh, uh, Ben Sisko's first jazz album? Yeah. <laughs> You know, he actually, uh, you know, Avery Brooks actually does do sort of um, Leonard Cohen esque jazz readings of songs. So maybe it could I be only both. know that I only know that because of that clip when Shatner's interviewing him on that uh, Captain's documentary. Yeah, where he's just sitting there like tinkling on the piano, making him sing stuff. He did it the music stra- for that documentary. Oh, did he? Yeah, oh, it, was very, it was a very strange scene. <laughs> he's he's a, he's a strange guy. Um, that's My, for th- I would like to say sorry. My favorite. Uh, second favorite Cisco moment is this: is when uh, when Quark comes onto the runabout and he's kind of exasperated, but he can't he can't say it with his face, because, so he just goes like, ha-ha! <laughs> 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 yeah, Cisco's uh, Cisco's put on quite a bit in the the early going here. He just wants he just wants to have a uh, somewhat inappropriately erotic trip with his son. That's all that's Cisco. <laughs> I will say that scene where they're talking to each other by the, the campfire was like, that was some, uh, um, shit. What's that Adam Sandler skit? With, uh, oh, camp boy. Camp, camp, yeah. Whatever, whatever it's called. Boy, Damn it. Boy, I can't remember that. Boy Scout or whatever, something like that. Yeah. With Alec Baldwin as the, uh, yes. Yeah. The scout and <laughs> they, they always, I, I like the relationship with Jake and Cisco, but the, sometimes they're the physicality and the way that they interact is a little it's a little bit odd of like this is not a real father son relationship. What's going on here? It's a, um, it's also um, I assumed some of that was due to the camera positioning. Like yes. you got to be able to shoot a two shot or a back and forth 
with people or lying on their sides. shoot overhead, like Arrested Development, where they're shooting down at yes. them as they're laying side by side. <laughs> like, you can staring, do that, and that does not come off eyes. as erotic, yeah. <laughs> um, I, did, I, I did also notice for the first time, I think, that uh, uh, Jake Sisko is like six feet tall now. He's really grown. He's, he's, yeah, he hit Nog, his, yeah, Nog is very short. <laughs> and they're like, isn't Nog like older than him or something in real yeah, life? Yeah, Nog's like a 30-year-old man at this point. <laughs> they're the actor, is yeah. Um, so uh, we'll get off of admiring Jake's young, tight body, and we'll move mm. into... Um, yes. So the, the last 10 minutes. I really love the last 10 minutes. The last 10 minutes of this episode are one of those things I look on YouTube just to watch that those scenes. Um, mm-hmm. Starting with the KO, Captain KO's sort of briefing on the station where he displays all of the smugness that is going to get the Federation into trouble going forward. I would, I would like to say that was... <laughs> Do you think they were like, all right, we're going to use a Galaxy-class starship. Get me discount store Patrick Stewart to be the captain of it. Yes, I I think that was 100% intentional. I think that the in canon, it makes sense that the Galaxy-class is supposed to be the the strongest ship in the fleet, but it's also purely done just to make people think of the Enterprise when the thing blows up, as you were saying. Um, I think it's all intentional. I think basically getting someone who's kind of a a weaker version of Patrick Stewart... that guy actually voices a uh, Skeletor on the He-Man animated. Series. No shit, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, with the high, the high pitched Skeletor voice. Yeah, that that, I, I'm wow. pretty sure that's that guy. Um, my other, yeah, big I was re- gonna say, it's like you need someone with very uh, specific diction. That's like the last pass yeah. you have, the last test you have to pass to be the captain of a galaxy class <laughs> ship. <laughs> the um, the other thing I would have changed about this, I talked about seeing New Bajor would have been a good setup. Um, if I were to fix the structure, I would have shown New Bajor at the beginning and I would have had the camping trip take up less time and Quark and Cisco's stuff would have taken, their dialogue would have happened as they were captured. That would have sped up the pace a little bit mm-hmm, for me. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would do, and I'm re- they tried to do this and I'm really disappointed they couldn't do it, is I wanted the Odyssey's bridge scenes to be shot on the TNG set. Yeah, that would have been nice. That would have been. It looks like they're in a two by five room, basically, yeah. when they're shooting that stuff. <laughs> it looks like it looks like the the way that they used to do it in the sixties, not the sixties, but uh, um, before when they when they didn't have the technology to actually project, so they just have someone's face inside the computer screen. Yeah, yeah. So it's like you're just looking through a piece of glass to the actual people who are sitting in like a very very small box. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a great um, sci fi movie. Italian sci-fi movie called Planet of the Vampires, where that's it's very clear that they're trying to do the uh, face on the screen thing, but it's like we don't ha- know how to do that. Just stick his face behind a piece of glass. It'll be yes. Fine. Yep. Yep. Just all about framing. Um, why'd you like the last ten minutes? I'm, I'm just I'll lead it off by just saying that the making it the destruction of the Odyssey, uh, a galaxy class ship, is super effective. Um, the one of the one of the writers of the thing said that their intent was to been of if that had been the Enterprise and Picard was there, it would have been the exact same result that they had run into. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the the scene is all it's almost it's definitely one of the best battle sequences that the show has done to this point. Um, the Jem'Hadar make a lot of sense. I think that the whole thing is paced really well. The only thing I would probably really change is that in typical 90s Star Trek fashion, after the Odyssey has been destroyed, O'Brien, Akira and Bashir have a great no dialogue reaction shot. <laughs> it cuts to O'Brien who says the Odyssey was retreating. There was no need for a suicide run, which is fine. 
unfortunately that then have cisco say they're trying to show us how far they're willing to go which is like kills the scene for me on some level um it's way too tell it's hammering into the audience what the point of it is when it's clear what the point of the suicide run was i would have changed that but other than that what would you enjoy about the last 10 minutes just uh, the action pacing or just the um summation of everything well the actual space fight I only thought was okay, mainly because again, I think they're a little overpowered because they've got these these uh, um, whatever special lasers that can just shoot right through the shields and, yep. and damage the galaxy class things. And there's three of these ships, and none of the shooting at these Jem'Hadar ships seems to be doing anything. Yep. Yet they don't even bother with the the runabouts they could have ta- they could have killed everybody very quickly yeah one of the um, runabouts is in rough shape but the the, the runabouts true. the runabouts are kind of a weakness of this at this mm-hmm. point right because they're it's basically a glorified shuttlecraft like there's yeah. no yeah. there's no oomph to the runabouts which is upsetting at this point i, but I they will keep, say i was just gonna say they always keep talking about like a adjusting the torpedo bays on the sh- yeah. on the on the uh, runabouts <laughs> and I, yeah. I keep thinking like they have torpedoes yeah, the captain. Where do they get, where do they fit? Would be my I don't question. Know. Yeah, apparently um, there's multiple rooms on them though, because at the end when they're back on the thing, he's like, "Jake, take the lady to that other room," and they oh, just right. disappear. <laughs> she needs privacy. Uh, the they do retcon the the Jem'Hadar after this. Oh, they do. Okay. Yes, and they also retcon the fact that uh, no Vorta is ever going to have Eris's telekinesis powers. That's probably for the best. Yeah. Um, I did. I did like the scene. I did like the stuff with her in the um, in the force field with the power dampening necklace. It felt very yep. '90s X Men to me. I feel like yeah, every yeah. <laughs> in, in the '90s, every time the X Men were captured, there was somebody that had a, a some sort of device that dampened their mutant powers. Yes, yeah. The Sentinels would capture them and put them in the into the yes. working fields or something and strap that onto them. Yeah. The- um, well, I was just gonna say, yeah. The uh, the last. 10 minutes. I thought the battle was okay. Uh, I think it was just, you know, the they took what seemed like it was going to be the flat resolution, which in every other episode, it would have just been, oh, well, it's a good thing we got away from that with our skin intact, and then there's this lady here. And then they just bust the doors open by blowing up the Odyssey and then ter- her turning, into be, uh, turning out to be a spy. And very clearly establishing these guys as as people who are not fucking around and are yep. and are most likely going to come back. Yeah, um, I just thought that stuff was great. I thought they, um, I, the blowing up of the Odyssey was more effective than I thought it was going to be, um, because that stuff can come off a little bit like. Uh, like I, I, I kind of generally don't love it when people determine stakes by killing people. Yeah. Because uh, I feel like it's a little cheap. Um, yep. But in this case, I think yeah, it's very easy, and it's like uh, we've talked about some of this stuff before. But uh, I thought yeah, blowing up the galaxy, the galaxy class starship was great. I thought it, it immediately because it immediately sets sets up a power level for these guys or, or what they're willing to do. And they do it by destroying not literally the enterprise, but basically the enterprise. It's something, yeah. it's a symbol that you're, that you're familiar with. And I thought that was a great way to, to set them up. I thought that was, uh, and it was just, it was just effective. It was, it was a step forward that they usually don't take on, on this show. Yeah. 
And I think that they they play up KO, the captain, as kind of an asshole early, but I think he's actually very effective once he's in command. He's not irritating, and he's he's clearly trying to protect the everyone that's there. You know, he, he's doing what's in the best interest of everyone there. He, they, they ultimately sacrifice, not really sacrifice, but they ultimately die for what they do. And they, it would have been a misstep to have him be an asshole the whole way through, I think, because mm-hmm. then you'd be like, well, fuck the Odyssey. Who cares about that thing? Um, they reconcile it a little bit and it makes sense towards the end. And I find the, I think the destruction of the Odyssey is actually one of the most effective starship destructions in the series, even including the movies to some point. Yeah, I would, I would totally agree. Cause uh, I mean, usually when they blow up a starship, it's one you don't really care about or it's or, like, or it's, they're sacrificing it in order to, you know, like in TOS, they, right, they blew yeah. up the original to save the day, basically. Yeah, it's usually some sort of f- sacrificial thing. I mean, I, except for except for when it comes to the Borg, I guess. But in this case, it was straight up. They just they just lost. They just yeah. got there. They just got beaten by uh, a method of war that they were not expecting. Right. Yeah, a very antithetical to the Federation values method of war. Very um, obviously based on kamikaze attacks of World War yeah. Two. Like, I, I don't know if it would have had as much punch if they had just blown it up with lasers to be honest with you yeah yeah that's it's i i, I like the the whole thing i like the you know they, they they set up the retreat uh bashir has the line about one of the jemadar ships is breaking formation making a run they try to intercept it they try to shoot it down and it just gets through and hits the odyssey and that's that's uh all she wrote for that ship i do kind of like that they um while they try to intercept it it's kind of like they don't expect him to do what he's going to do yeah. And um, so they're all completely baffled by it. Yeah. Yep. Um, I think that's it. I think we're that's it for season two of DS9. We'll take a break. I'm going to play an audio clip. We're going to come back and we will read patron thoughts, give our own thoughts, and then we will call this one a day. I don't understand. I've been looking over this collar of yours. I thought if I replicated it, I might be able to turn a tidy profit. Imagine my surprise when I discovered there's nothing in here. It's just a complicated locking device. Which means you could have used your telekinetic abilities at any time. So the question is, why didn't you? You seem to already know the answer. The Jem Hadar wanted us to escape, didn't they? That was the plan all along. For us to bring you back here so you could spy on the Federation. Well done, Commander. You're one of the founders, aren't you? You think the Founders would waste their time with you? Constable! Madam, if you'll come with us. You have no idea what's begun here. Okay, so, patron thoughts for the Jem'Hadar. This is uh, something, if you guys support the show on patreon.com slash the Pensky file, you can leave your thoughts about upcoming episodes. We read them, we react to them, and... uh, that's about it. But we appreciate your thoughts all nonetheless. Sometimes there's some uh, some real, some real good gems and some good jokes going here. Uh, Barry Wallace writes, The Gem Hadar. Absolutely love this episode for introducing us to the best Trek villains since the TNG gave us the Borg and for setting up the future of the show. This is where DS9 really starts to get good. Um, let's, let's scroll down here a little bit. Joint Mango. The Gem Hadar, a.k.a. Reptile Sardacar. Is that the thing you were mentioning last time, Clay? The um, The Dune army? Sure. <laughs> you had mentioned something about Dune, saying that the Jem'Hadar reminded you of that, and I don't, I don't know how to pronounce this. Is it? Oh, I Sar- think, I think it, it sounds more like uh, the Gom Jabbar, which I don't, th- I think is a thing. I don't remember. It's a. Okay. <laughs> that's the, that's the thing he puts his hand inside. 
I don't remember. I think that the fear, Sardaukar... Fear is the mind killer. They're like the, the guys in black, like the evil army guys. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I have to ask Dave. <laughs> we'll call him up right now. Uh, he says, Jemadar, <laughs> a.k.a. the Reptile those Army guys from Dune. Great episode. Nicely sets up the start of the third season. And by that, I mean, yay, the show is finally starting. Full disclosure, I trusted Eris on first viewing. Sad. The Vorta are pretty neat, but how much of that is due to the very special Vorta we're introduced to and to the death, much like how Lalemo nailed the prototypical Cardassian and the wounded, as you discussed on the podcast. Is, uh, uh, is Cisco bald when we come back for season three? No, he shaves his head in season four. Uh. I think he grows a beard midway through season three, which is him sort of starting to change, I think. You know what's funny? I'm sorry to derail, derail this, but uh, um, if this show is on now, and halfway through the third season, or half halfway through the next season, Cisco started to draw to grow a beard. You know how many think pieces there would be about people speculating that he was replaced with Mirror Universe Cisco? Yeah, right. <laughs> to the point where they'd have to address it in the show. Yeah, you because yeah. well, because they obviously they set up the Mirror Universe in the last season. Yeah. So and obviously goatees mean the Mirror Universe. So clearly that's what happened. That's true. God, do I hate watching TV in the modern era. It sucks. Um, so, yes, I do. And as Joy Mango mentions here, uh, we do meet the Vorta. The Vorta, the Vorta, I will say now to you, Clay, the Vorta become one of my favorite species of the show uh, that the, any of the Star Treks ever do. Um, and it is because they bring in an actor who plays one that sort of redefines what they are as a, as a role. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll get to that when we get to it. Uh, Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep. She really, she really kills it as Wayun. Uh, where's the thing? Stephen Cobb, the Jem'Hadar. Nog is very annoying in this episode. Upon further contemplation, the whole setup with Jake and Nog doing the science project, Jake oblivious to his dad's desire for father-son time, and the subsequent reaction and acceptance by Cisco is spot on. Maybe the scene was low-hanging fruit, but it was well-written and felt painfully true to life. The introduction of the Dominion was well done and feels in character for them as we know to come them over the course of the show, with one exception, Vorta Pyrokinetics. What's up with that? Let's uh, just say, let's try this out and see how it feels from the writers. I do not recall this ever appearing again, and I think you're right, it never does actually appear again. It's, I mean, it's really the only reason that it's there is to get them out of the thing, right? Yes. And she, to, yeah. to set up the uh, the spy turn at the end. Yep. No, there's it, yeah, there's it, she do she does it sort of um uselessly when she meets them. She shoots Cisco with it for no particular yeah. reason. Yeah. Uh, Matthew Ross writes, Jem Hadar. I, I edited this one a little bit, Matthew. Sorry, but it's, it's a little, it was a little bit long for the uh, purposes of this. The uh, Jem Hadar. At first, a love boat airport '77 opening with a melange of stories that are so hilarious. No, although I can hear the dad, can I bring my friend X along in real life on occasion? This was entirely ridiculous. However, in all of Quark's whining, the idea that the feds are homo sapiens only club echoed in Star Trek six is an interesting take that the later shown uh, is shown in later episodes. When I saw this originally, I'm sure that I and most of the people watching could tell she was a plant. He's talking about Eris. All I could think was the line about how the Jemadar is no one escapes the Spanish Inquisition. I was fooled. I will I will gladly admit to the fact that Eris had me fooled. Um the Jem'Hadar's walking through the containment field was the creepiest, best uh-oh moment in the episode for me. The fact that their colonies and ships are getting attacked and destroyed only spells doom and gives a level of apprehension that the Borg only partially delivered. Getting to the real excitement actually improved that the galaxy class is not all that. Interesting battle makes you realize it was a mistake to just come out to the Gamma Quadrant. And those runabouts, not going to cut it. They need a better defense than the advanced shuttlecraft, obvious from their appearance in front of the Jem'Hadar warships. If I were a nerd, which I'm not, clearly... I would comment that I believe it's, isn't it, 
nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Yes, it is nobody expects. And I yeah. just double checked. So, he, he did write no one escapes. Yeah. <laughs> stop taking his money and ban him from whatever groups we have. I was <laughs> I was at the plant store today buying plants because that's what you do when you're middle aged. And um, <laughs> the, the, the announcement over the loudspeaker said, can John Cleese please report to the front desk? And I was like, oh, John shit. Cleese. And you immediately looked for someone walking very strangely. <laughs> the, the Ministry of Silly Potted Plants. Very, a very tall person walking I, very strangely up to the to buy a ficus. The um, that is one of my favorite sketches in the uh, argument, the argument department or whatever that sketch is. Yes. is is probably my favorite uh, meta sketch of all time. Uh, I I think uh, I think I may have brought this one up before, but I I really love the one the uh, one where. Uh, Eric Idle comes home to his dad, who seems like he's a gruff coal miner. Right, yeah, they but his, his dad's a poet, and <laughs> Eric Idle is a coal miner. Yeah, I really enjoy that. And yeah, my last one is the um, there's one where it's like a, a rich upper class family talking about Woody words versus Tinny words, which is <laughs> really bizarre and doesn't make sense if you describe it, but it's just hysterical when you actually see it. Gord, that's a good Woody word. Gord. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I heard I heard somewhere um, I think it was I forget which one of them it was they were talking about how uh, so many of their sketches were just the five of them sitting in a room with a thesaurus yeah and just picking words <laughs> being unbelievably I, you know, high yeah I I, uh, I went back years ago in the early days of uh, Netflix streaming they had the entire Monty Python run on there and so I actually sat down and watched it while I was while I was working a lot more blackface than I thought there was yes yeah a lot of it. Britain, I feel like Britain is a little bit behind the curve in terms of, uh, I've talked about this with our British listeners, but when I was over there, I was watching their sort of daytime game show. There, mm. It's borderline sexual assault, what the hosts are doing yeah. to the women on, on those Well, have you, have you seen that clip from uh, some Australian uh, like talent show where this group of people come out and do a Jackson 5 routine with giant afro wigs and in full blackface. Wow. And, wow. and yeah, Harry, they... Harry Connick Jr. Harry Connick Jr. is on is on the panel. And after they're done, everybody's like going, oh, that was so great. That was amazing. And then they get to him and he's like, uh, that we, that's, that's just not something that I can't really get behind that. And they had to come back from commercial and do like a one-on-one a, a -on -one with him and the host. Yeah. Where he had to explain that in America, that stuff is not exactly uh, welcomed anymore yeah, the way yeah. it is in other places. Yeah. you. Get, I mean, obviously there's slavery and stuff. I guess you just – America is just hypersensitive to it. Yeah, you just don't do blackface on American uh, entertainment shows just for our overseas listeners who are trying to dust off that act for themselves. Um, yeah. <laughs> so note to, note to self. If you, want it to get, if you want to make it big in America, don't do that. That's probably the one thing you can't do. Hey, everybody. I missed one of the patron comments, so I'm just going to stick it in at the end here and then get back to it. Kyle Barrett says, The Jem'Hadar. While the introduction of the Dominion is the major event of the episode, I think that my favorite part is the dynamic between Cisco and Quark. Ira Bear is the writer who truly gets the Ferengi and actually tackling the racism we've seen from Starfleet towards them in the past is a great way to further develop the species. I'm sure that if this was produced today, there would be a DC TV-style crossover with the Enterprise going into the Gamma Quadrant at the end, but I'm glad it's not. After seven seasons of TNG, seeing a galaxy-class ship get completely destroyed does more to show the threat of the Jem'Hadar than anything else could. All right, that's it. Thanks very much, patrons. Back to it. Um, let's see here. So it's, that's it. Thank you, patrons, for writing in. Um, I know there's, there wasn't many responses because we're kind of jumping ahead of the schedule and people maybe didn't have time to comment, but we'll be back to normal once Clay returns from vacation. Um, that's it. So, Clay, we'll give our ratings here. And I wanted to, before we give a rating... 
uh, I was considering revamping the rating schedule or scale, but I, I don't think uh. I'm, I'm going to. But I, I do want to say that DS9 is a much harder show. My rating system, I feel less confident in than I do on TNG's ratings, where if someone were to say, like, go through the TNG and tell me some really good episodes. Yeah. DS9 is much harder to do because TNG was purely about the episodic the episode it was everything was about the episode of tng ds9 and maybe you can comment on this think things are building in a way where the episodes don't stand out and even if i give an episode a three it's probably better than a tng three is if that makes sense like you it's hard to judge them on an episode by episode basis when so much of it has been building to things and it's not even really doing it full bore at this point but the DS9 episodes don't stand out as highlights to me as much as they are improving on how they start telling their stories going forward. So the ratings might seem a little bit low. People aren't really complaining, but I I feel like The Wire is tough for me to give a three. But if I look at it as an episode standing on its own, it is kind of a three to me, even though it's more important than that in the long run. Yeah, and it's going to be the kind of thing, I assume, where it's like you're going to get to we're going to get to an episode down the road that we're going to give a five. And the, one of the reasons that we're going to give it a five is because of stuff that happened in like a, yeah. a handful of episodes before that was only like a two or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that's, that's a different style of storytelling. I mean, it's a very much a, it's almost like a, a comic book style of storytelling, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, this uh, is kind of a comic booky episode of Star Trek. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, it's a, it, it reminds me of nineties X-Men where it's like, you get the, uh, x-men annual where the story is uh wolverine and cyclops have to go on a camping trip with, ju- <laughs> with ju- jubilee and, and boom boom from x-force or something and then they end up getting uh, captured by uh genosian slavers or something yeah yes exactly um, but yeah yeah i think it's going to be interesting because yeah say i this is a tough i would say it's a three because i i think the thing that's going to be tough is and that is inherently tough with serialized storytelling is when when you get into this kind of thing, there's going to be a lot fewer episodes that you're going to call out as being like your favorite yeah. episodes. Yeah. Like think of like, I don't know, anything like Daredevil or Jessica Jones or something. One of the newer shows that is very clearly like one long story. Yeah. I, I can't tell you like, oh, that was my favorite episode. No, or, no. Or, you know, I'm not going to go back and throw on episode five from the first season of Daredevil just because I want <laughs> right, to watch that's, Daredevil. That's the one that know? sticks out, yeah. Uh, maybe maybe when Daredevil, you could say something like, you know, the Mister the King the Kingpin episode, and then later on you've got the Punisher stuff in season two or whatever. But, you remember but, scenes. You remember moments yeah, more than episodes. Yeah, yeah and g- generally you're not going to p- pull an episode out of the middle of the season to just throw on the way you would with with. Uh, Enter- uh, not Enterprise, uh, TNG, or uh, something like that, which yes. is which is interesting because it's this is even we're now even in seems to be we're in an even different style of storytelling than something like the X Files because you could do that with the X Files you can very easily go in and pick out your favorite episode because even though it's a serialized in some form it's still mainly self contained yeah and I, you can do the same thing with Buffy the Vampire Slayer which is generally a little bit more serialized but. DS9 fits into that mold, I think. DS9 is of that group. It's of the X-Files and Buffy group. Yeah, yeah. So that'll be that'll be interesting. I'll, I'll be interested to see how it changes. But yeah, it's it's going to be a little bit tougher, I, I think I agree, to rate them. Because this one, I would I think, has great stuff in it. 
but I don't know if as a whole I would rate it as like a four or a five. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're going to give it a three then? That's yeah, I'll give it a three. I'll I'll give it a four. I'll say it's like a week four just because I really love the last 10 minutes of it. And I think that the quirk stuff is really good. And yeah, I think I'm, I'm, th- change, I'm changing my rating. I, I, I should be a four. It shouldn't be a three. You call it four. Yeah, I think it's yeah. just a... It, it, the problem is that it's not the first 20 minutes are probably really not all that interesting on some level, like until they start mm-hmm. getting into the conflicts that go on. Um, so the pacing is wrong. But I, I think that this is this is potentially an episode that you could show someone as the first pilot of the show if you didn't want to go back to Emissary. Yeah, you could do that. Probably. Yeah. And I think it would make sense. And I think that it would fit everything. And I think that it's. It's a drastic turning point, and it's a very important episode for how everything pan out going forward. Um, just uh, uh, something that I that I noticed that I forgot to mention. Do you have any reason why Kira would specifically tell Odo not to go on that mission? No. Yeah, that, that, that is really just a scene for. Think... Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, I, no, I was just gonna say I thought it was really strange because. I don't think I, she's ever really interacted with him like that before. And obviously, and Odo is not like, he's no slouch when it comes to fighting yeah. and stuff. I don't, I don't know why you would specifically tell Odo not to go. That scene to me kind of hit on a, one of the problems I have with the episode is that the um, the pacing and structure, it feels like the show may, maybe takes a little bit of leaps with what people are assuming is going on because... Mm-hmm. Odo has a line there where he's like, I'm going to go rescue Quark because I'd rather have him in prison here than be captured by the Dominion, which he doesn't really know anything about the Dominion. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, that seems like something you can say after a season of getting to know what they do to you. But him just sort of storming off felt like it was the scene was written to just be dramatic and give Odo a reason to be in the runabout at the very end. Yeah, Um, I I could see it. I honestly could could see it going the other way. If Odo had said to Kira, told Kira not to go. Sure. Because you know she could have, could he could have said something like, "Well, you know, you're I don't want you acting too impulsively because they destroyed the Bajoran colony or something." Right, like and that. we we need leadership little... here. If Cisco doesn't come back, you're in charge over here. Yeah, you know? and it would have been a nice way to show Odo showing compassion, but like logically or from what he sees as logical compassion, yes. which which I think fits the character more than him trying to rescue Quark. Uh, on a yeah. level, even though I I understand what he's doing, and it's like you said, they are really friends deep down, even though they don't like each other. Yeah. Um, so it, it, I just thought it was, it was kind of a weak scene, although it it hit me like emotionally right, but it just it didn't make sense on a technical level. Mm. Um, yeah, I'll give it a four. I like this episode. I think it could be the new pilot, and that's it for DS Nine season two. We're done. We're flying through these things. It doesn't feel like it when you look at the the, the episode list to start, but then you finish it and you're like, wow, was, that's actually all that she wrote. Um, anything else, Clay? Do you have anything you want to say? Uh, no. I'm no. heading to Scot. I'm heading to Scotland next week. Yeah, which I've never been. Uh, so that'll be fun. I'm gonna be there for like five days. Uh, apparently drinking scotch for five days. So um, Scottish listeners, let let Clay know what to do while he's there. Yeah, if, if you know anything cool to do in Islay, let me know. <laughs> and um, although let's... I don't know when this is going up, I might already be there. <laughs> 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 oh, that's true. Yeah, you might already. That actually, uh, you probably will be either leaving or back by the time that's it. So Clay will be returning from Scotland. If you met him over there, uh, this will prove as proof that it was actually him. And <laughs> let's see. I, I watched. Uh, I guess my just non sequitur would be. I finished Love on Netflix. I highly recommend. Oh yeah, it. I really enjoyed that show. I think it's really great. It's uh, um, 
the writing is very, very good. It's very good. And, you know, I it, have you watched Barry at all on HBO? No, not yet. Not oh, yet. Barry's so good. It's so good. And I think they're kind of part of the same thing where all of the decisions that are made by the characters matter. Yeah. And each have diff- have consequences that then spur on, you know, things that happen later and later and later. Silicon Valley is the same way, too. Like, I, I really enjoy Silicon Valley because every decision that every character makes has some sort of consequence that they didn't think about. I'm starting... And- yeah, I'm I'm starting to see the um the machinery of Silicon Valley yes. a little bit too much. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. Um but yeah, Love was great and uh I really enjoyed Barry. Barry I mean it's not I think it's got two episodes left, but it's man, it's really good. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, I would I would recommend Love. Um uh very good like a it's a take on relationships that I don't think you really see all that often. It's kind of a, a nice honest. It's a comedy, so it's funny, but it's um uh, it's just an interesting way to look at relationships. And like, it, it certainly reminds me of being younger in a way that a lot of shows don't manage to do with the romantic comedy stuff. Yeah. It's, it's funny, but it's not easy. Yeah. Um, right. and you know, I will say though, I thought the final season, they took it easy on them quite a bit. They did. The, I think like, they wanted to focus on the other characters a little bit and they yeah. didn't know what to do because they couldn't really, yeah, spoilers. They couldn't really have a, a bigger thing between the two main characters. You know, yeah, yeah. If they wanted to end it that way, that they did. So, but I, I highly recommend the first uh, couple seasons. I thought the third season was a little bit of a weaker one, but it, it wrapped it up nicely. And there's only three seasons, so it's only like thirty episodes or so. Yeah, you know, I was thinking the other day. Um, I wonder if we missed a good opportunity to, uh, if we were gonna, if we were looking for something else to cover to do Lost in Space. Oh yeah. Because I, I really, I don't know if you've watched it yet, but I really liked it. I thought it was really good. Did you, you finished uh, it? I did. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll watch it and we can just do a one-off talk about the entire thing, if you remember enough to talk about it that way. Um, but yeah, that, because yeah, I, I, that. I should probably watch that. It's only a couple episodes and it's on Netflix, and I uh, might as well do that. It's something to watch. We could uh, we should get Sean on for that, too, Murphy, because he, oh, he, really, he really liked it a lot. Yeah, I'm sure he'll talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to talk to him and we can touch base about it. But anyway, I think that's it for Non-Sequiturs. Clay, thank you very much for coming on. Oh, thank Oh, other thing I have to mention. Hopefully this is not... Um, another false start but theoretically in the next month or so there will be a new podcast from myself and Sean Murphy about Batman the Animated Series finally um, it's been delayed for you know various life reasons but his book is done and we've got the whole season of Batman the Animated Series recorded and we're just going to figure out the right time to put it out now hopefully I'm going to try and do it next month so be ready for that there you go. Batman the Animated Series will be out. If you guys are into that or you're into Clay and Sean, you can listen to Batman the Animated Series, Batass, the podcast. Um, that's it. Guys, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. We're moving on. DS9 kicks into gear. Season 3 is here. And we're only have uh, up is the only way that we have to go, I suppose. Guys, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time.